Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Thank you guys for being here tonight. Uh, ben has said that it feels like there's low energy. I don't believe in him. I think you guys are excited to be here. I can feel it. I can, I can see, I can feel it. You guys. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Is it though? If you said it sarcastically, isn't that the same thing? Anyways, uh, <laughs> thank you for being here. We're excited. Um, I'm excited for what uh, Mark has, um, the Spirit has for us from the Gospel tonight. We're going to be Mark chapter 6, picking up where Clay left off just a few moments ago. So it's Mark chapter 6, verse 6b, if you want to be turning there in your Bibles to follow along. Um, In order to kind of set up the text for tonight, I just want to tell you about an experience I had uh, a few years ago. This was back the summer after I graduated from college, or sorry, the, the sophomore year when I was in college. I don't know what I'm talking about. Sophomore year of college. Uh, the summer after that year, um, which to some of you guys apparently is eons ago, it's in reality probably about four years ago, somewhere in that range. Uh, I had an internship at a church. I was working as their intern for the youth group during the summer. Uh, it was a great experience, really good church. Uh, but I remember one Wednesday night after one of our weekly gatherings, um, we were sitting around hanging out and chatting with some of the student leaders who were there. Um, and uh, one of the girls who was, again, a student leader in the ministry, really, really um, phenomenal faith, good Christian, great family. She had this question, and it kind of it took me back. I was a little shocked. She was, again, this person who grew up in the church her whole life. Her parents were Christians. She had been baptized when she was really young. And her question was, after I've been baptized as a Christian, what do I do with the rest of my life? After I've been baptized as a Christian, what do I do with the rest of my life? And being a sophomore uh, you know, in college, I'm sure I didn't have the best answer. If you told me now what I said, I'd probably be a little shocked um, at, at my response. I remember being taken aback and not fully knowing how to answer um, and it's this, I mean, I mean, I remember in the conversation, she had this almost lament, right? Because she had friends or she knew people that she went to school with, some people in the youth group who didn't come to Jesus until later in their life. And they had these uh, amazing stories about how, you know, they, they were living a certain way. They didn't believe in Jesus. Maybe they didn't have family. They went to church. And they encountered the person of Jesus in their life, had this uh, amazing transformation. Um, and because of that, she thought their stories had a little bit more meaning than hers did. And she had this question of, I've already been baptized. And that seems to be like the big thing that you do as a Christian. And so her, her question was, what do I do with the rest of my life? Like now that I'm a follower of Jesus, what comes next? Um, and I, I think in reality, that's a question that maybe we all struggle with a little bit. I think in the current uh, climate of our Christian culture, um, it's easy to fall into this mindset of Christianity being nothing more or less than this really good life insurance policy. That we have this encounter with the person of Jesus and he saves us from our sins and then uh, we know that whenever we die, if we keep this list of do's and don'ts, that we'll be zapped up into heaven after our death. And it's really easy, I think, for us to have the misconception that that's really what it's all about. It's all about this, this encounter with Jesus and he saves you from your sins and then after that, Again, it's this list of do's and don'ts, and when you die, you'll be zapped up into heaven. It's this almost really good life insurance policy. And so the question is, is that really all that there is to the Christian life? After you've been saved, for the rest of your time in this life, is that really what it's all about? Is it just this really good life insurance policy? Is it just about this list of do's and don'ts? And if it's not just that, the question is, what is it really about? So that's the question that we're going to wrestle with some tonight. Um, so that drives us to our, our text, Mark chapter 6, 
starting in verse 6b. Um, just to let you know, the text that we're going through tonight is a literary device um, that Mark uses in his gospel. And uh, people who have doctorates in theology, people who are very important, who have doctorates in theology or missiology or religious studies, no joke, they call this literal device, uh, they call it a Markin sandwich, which to me is just the funniest name for a text. Some people call it brackets because I think they feel silly calling it a sandwich. But I call them sandwich texts, and I think it's a great name. So basically, um, the way the text works is it starts with like, so you know how sandwiches work, right? You've got a slice of bread, and then you've got like the meat of the sandwich, and then you've got a slice of bread, right? I, I feel like I'm getting, do you guys know how sandwiches work? I'm not seeing, okay, sorry. I got like, I got nothing. Everybody looked really confused for a second. So I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So uh, much like a sandwich, we're going to start with like a slice of bread and then have uh, the meat and then a slice of bread. It's a story that like starts in one place, it finishes at the other, and in the middle it gets interrupted by another story. If you were at the Oxford Church of Christ on Sunday, I actually taught through a different Markin sandwich, right? The story of like the synagogue leader who goes to Jesus because his daughter's dying, and then in the middle it gets interrupted of the story with the bleeding woman, and then again uh, it ends with the story of the synagogue leader, right? So it's like this, this sandwich that gets interrupted with a story in the middle. And so that's what Mark's going to do again tonight. He starts out with one story, interrupts it with another, and then finishes that first story. And the purpose of those sandwiches, the purpose of this literary device that gets used, is the story in the middle is supposed to tell you something about the story on the outside. The meat of the sandwich in the middle is supposed to tell you about the bread, right? Like, the story in the middle gives you some kind of indication about the real meaning and the purpose of the story on the outside. So just keep that in mind. What I'm going to do, I'm just going to read the text in its entirety, the whole thing, and then we'll kind of go back through and unpack it piece by piece. So, Mark chapter 6, starting in 6b. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling his twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And here Mark interrupts the first story with another story. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I'm beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist 
on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And then Mark goes back and finishes that first story. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So we can start by admitting this is a pretty strange text, right? It's this weird interruption. It starts off with this wonderful story that makes a lot of sense to us. Jesus sends out his disciples. That's a concept we're kind of familiar with. And then right in the middle, it gets interrupted with the story of John the Baptist's beheading. And then it goes back to that first story. So let's start with Jesus sending out the 12. Um, so far in the Gospel of Mark, to be honest with you, the disciples have kind of played the role of the fool. Like, they've kind of followed along with Jesus, but they haven't really gotten any of it, right? Like, they've over and over again missed who Jesus is. They don't understand his purposes for the world. Jesus has accused them of having little to no faith in him. There are times when they provide ammunition for the Pharisees to accuse Jesus of various different things. It's just the, the way that Mark paints the disciples, they just don't get it. Right? They kind of play the role of the fool. But when Jesus first calls his disciples, he says he does it for two reasons. If you remember back to the first four disciples he calls, he says, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then again in chapter 3, when he officially appoints the 12 apostles, Mark tells us the reason that he did so was because he wanted them to follow him, but he also wanted, them, he wanted to send them out to preach. Right? And so, so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen the disciples follow Jesus, but now we're going to see them live into that second bit. We're going to see them try to make fishers of men. We're going to see them get sent out to preach. But what I want us to recognize up front is that to Jesus, what it means to be a disciple from the very beginning is to follow him and to be sent. From the very beginning, when Jesus calls his disciples, he has in mind the purpose of a disciple is to follow him and be sent. And now he finally gets around to that sending part. But the way that he does it is kind of peculiar. Verse 8, these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Right? And I think it's easy to hear those words and kind of let them wash over you. But just for a second, just imagine if I said, okay, I'm going to send you guys out and I want you to go proclaim the gospel. Right? So you two, you're going to go to Cenotopia. You two are going to Hernando. You two are going to Batesville. And then I said, okay, we're going to, yeah, sorry. Oh. Yeah, you can go to Tupelo. We can send Sam and somebody else to Tupelo. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll take your opinions into consideration. We'll send you where you want to go. But so we're sending you there, right, two by two. And I said, okay, before you leave, what I need you to do is give me your car keys. I need you to give me your phones. I need you to give me your wallets. If you're wearing a jacket, you've got to take them off and leave them here. Here's a staff. You can go. <laughs> it's it's the easy to hear these words and let them wash over us. But if you're a disciple and you leave everything that you have with Jesus— and you leave to go somewhere you've never been before to proclaim the gospel, it's got to be a very frightful experience. It's a very strange situation to be put in. And not only that, but if you'll notice in verse 11, Jesus says, And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. When Jesus sends his disciples, he lets them know that baked into their mission, there are going to be people and places that reject them. And they've been around Jesus long enough to know that, right? Like the, uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day have completely rejected Jesus and his followers. 
the passage that Clay read for us just a moment ago that comes right before this story, they went back to Je with Jesus to his hometown, and the people who knew him best, the people who grew up with him, rejected him and his followers. And Jesus tells him, I'm going to send you out, and the same thing is going to happen to you. People are going to reject you. And so if you're an apostle, Jesus is getting ready to send you out, but again, you feel woefully unprepared because you really don't understand who this Jesus person is yet. You don't have entirely worked out who he is or what his plans are. He sends you out with absolutely no resources whatsoever, and he tells you there's a good chance you're going to face a lot of rejection. He sends them out, and how unprepared, how woefully unprepared and fearful they must feel. And yet, if you'll notice, he doesn't send them out totally unequipped. Verse 7 Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over impure spirits. They must feel so confused. They must feel so worried. They're woefully unprepared. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't have any resources. Uh, you know, they, they've been told they're going to face rejection, but notice that Jesus gives them authority. It's the same authority that Jesus has been given them. He gives them authority over impure spirits. He gives them authority to cast out sickness and demons. He gives them the same authority that quieted the storm, the same authority that cast out the legion of demons, the same authority that healed the leper and the paralytic. He sends them out with everything they need. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them, despite the fact they miss who Jesus is, and they don't fully understand him. Despite the fact they feel like they have not enough resources to do the task, and despite the fact they know they're going to face rejection, they go anyway, and the result is what we see in verse 11 and 12. Jesus sends them out with absolutely everything they need. One question remains in this passage, though. If you'll notice verse 12, it says they went out and preached that the people should repent. So what is it that the apostles are preaching in this passage? What are they preaching here? They're asking people to repent. That's good. Uh, yeah, so that's good. What else, what else would you, well, like, if um, we oftentimes preach and ask people to repent, yeah? Uh, I was going to say my version says uh, they ask people to change their hearts and lives. Yeah, they ask people to change their hearts and their lives. Um, what might you say that falls under the category of whenever we preach, what do we preach to people? We, pre we tell them to repent, their hearts and minds are changed, but through what lens? Gospel. Yeah, it's the gospel, right? It's the good news. It's the good news, the gospel. So they're going out and preaching the gospel. All get all that totally fits in that category, right? It's a repentance. You know, it's the way that you change and live your life. It's this renewing of their hearts and their minds. It's the story of the gospel being encountered. But but really quickly, I want to I want to point something out. I think oftentimes when we think about the gospel, or oftentimes if you ask someone what the gospel was, they would tell you the story of the gospel is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, right? But here's a quick problem. If you've been following along so far in the story of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has not yet died, been buried, or resurrected. <laughs> and so the question is, what gospel are they preaching? And the answer is they're preaching the same gospel that Jesus preaches in the first chapter of Mark, right? Like they're preaching the gospel that the kingdom of God has come near. And don't, get, don't mishear me, I think, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is central, it's key, it's at the very heart of the kingdom of God, right? Like, it's this very important moment without it, the kingdom of God, I don't think, exists. But, know this, the kingdom of God is central to the story of the gospel. 
So they go out proclaiming the kingdom of God. They go out proclaiming that that kingdom has come near the moment that the Jewish people have waited for, the promised moment when God's rule is among his people. When everything is set right, when brokenness is healed, when there's no more sickness or death, when people relate to one another in the right way, there's no more cheating or lying or stealing. When they relate to creation in the right way, they work in a way that isn't frustrated. They work in a way that is honoring of God. The kingdom of God has come near the moment when all things are set right and God dwells among his people. That's the gospel they go out to preach and proclaim. But they don't only say it with their words. If you'll notice, they show people what it looks like to live under the reign and the rule of the kingdom of God. They drive out many demons. They heal those who are sick. They don't just preach that the kingdom of God has come near, but they show people what it looks like to live under the kingdom of God. And if you're an apostle, this is the moment you've been waiting for, where the rule and the reign of God begins to take on a very real aspect as you get to see it break in into the lives of the people around you. The kingdom of God, the moment they've been waiting for, has finally come near. And then Mark interrupts the story with this bizarre tale about John the Baptist being beheaded. This story with this strange King Herod. And by the way, if you're, a gospel, if you're hearing the gospel of Mark in the first century, Mark's original audience, when he says King Herod, you hold back a little bit of laughter. Because Herod, as it turns out, isn't actually a king. In Rome, he's what's called a tetrarch, which is much more like a governor, right? But this was kind of a sore subject for Herod. He had tried to be a king over and over again. He had applied to Rome. And eventually, because he won't drop it, and, and they think he might be stockpiling arms to hold a revolution, they end up exiling King Herod, right? So this King Herod is a mocking title that Mark uses, and if you're sitting in the first century and you hear him get called King Herod, you hold back laughter. It's like if I said, hey, could you go grab me a cup of water? And you said, oh yeah, sure thing, King Ben. You know, it's like I have nowhere near enough authority or power for you to call me a king. Same thing with Herod. It's a joke. King Herod, and you, you laugh, right? But this King Herod imprisons John the Baptist. John the Baptist who prepares the way for Jesus. And in this weird kind of palace intrigue plot, this story that's filled with darkness and, and kind of gross context, like Herod marries his brother's wife, right? And history tells us that he had been having an affair with his brother's wife, and she divorces Philip, his brother, and comes and marries Herod. And then at this party, uh, his wife, which by the way is his niece, like it's, it's a, a daughter from his wife's first marriage, comes and dances for Herod at this party, and he's pleased, and so he promises her anything that she wants. In this weird palace kind of intrigue, this strange story that's filled with brokenness and sickness, and this false king Herod who promises half of a kingdom he doesn't have to this girl who's a niece because she pleased him when he was dancing, this incredible story of darkness leads to John the Baptist's death. He's the first one to be martyred under the reign of the kingdom of God. He dies this life in a prison because he spoke truth to someone in power. And then Mark goes on and finishes the story. This is what he says. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And so the question is, why would Mark interrupt this story about the kingdom of God breaking in? Why would Mark interrupt this story about this beautiful moment when the kingdom of God begins to, begin, begins to be realized, when sicknesses are healed, when demons are cast out, when people are told to repent, when they begin to accept and understand the gospel of Jesus? Why would he interrupt this story with the beheading of John the Baptist? 
And I think what Mark is trying to get us to grapple with, what the Spirit through Mark is trying to show us is that the kingdom of God is not the only kingdom at work in this story. He interrupts this story with this plot of John the Baptist being beheaded because he wants you to see that the kingdom of God doesn't enter into this world unopposed. The kingdom of God doesn't enter into this world for free. Dominant in this world already is the kingdom of sin and death. Dominant in this world already are false kings like Herod with false kingdoms who only serve themselves and serve the cause of darkness and brokenness and sin and death. The kingdom of God doesn't enter into this world for free. It doesn't enter this, into this world unopposed. The kingdom of God enters in as a mission to liberate the world from the kingdom of darkness and death. And Mark wants us to grapple with these two stark contrasting realities because, yes, the kingdom of God is breaking in, and yes, it's moving in ways that are powerful and transforming lives, but what he wants you to see is that the kingdom of sin and death is dominant in Jesus' culture and time. The world and the history and the culture is ruled by the kingdom of sin and death. And the same is true for us today. We live in a world whose history and culture is dominated by the kingdom of sin and death. And these are two powerful realities that were caught between them. The kingdom of God has come near. The ki- Jesus has established his kingdom and, and reigns now as king. And yet in the current moment in which we live, it's easy to see the powers of sin and death working in culture, in our world, and in our history far more than the kingdom of God. And as we grapple with this reality that Mark puts in front of us, that there are these two competing kingdoms that are trying to occupy the same space, as we grapple with that reality, I think Mark wants us to see a few things. The first thing I I think he wants us to see is that, that you have to make a choice. Right? These are two kingdoms that are diametrically opposed to one another. These are two kingdoms that are at war. And in a war, there's no room for a sideline. There's no room for a middle ground. Mark is putting you in a moment of crisis where you have to make a choice about what side you're going to end up on. In this kind of reality, as you grapple with the kingdom of God breaking into a world that's filled with sin and darkness, there's no room for a view where Christianity is a mere life insurance policy, where you do certain things and you don't do other things, and then at the end when you die, you get to cash out and live in heaven forever. That's not the worldview that he wants you to adopt. What he wants you to understand is when you sign up to be a member of the kingdom of God, you sign up for life and life to the fullest. You sign up for freedom, you sign up for joy, you sign up for hope and peace and a life that is filled with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the good news and the power of the Spirit that comes with that. But what he also wants you to realize is that you're going to war against a kingdom of sin and darkness and death. And everything in your life is leveraged to fight against that kingdom. The weapons that we use are love of neighbor self-sacrificial love, forgiving enemies, serving your communities and building relationships with those in the margins. These are the tools of the war that we fight, but you have to make a choice. There's no middle ground. There's no safe sideline. You're either in or you're out. You're part of the kingdom of God or you live under the rule of sin and death. You're one of the villages that accepts the apostles or they shake the dust off their feet as they leave you behind. And because you have to make a choice and because there's no middle ground, when you 
choose to be in the kingdom of God, if you choose to be a part of this kingdom of God, you need to realize that Jesus sends you, right? Again, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be an apostle of Jesus is that you are called to follow him, but you're also sent into that world. You're sent into that world that is filled with the brokenness of sin's curse, with the evil and the darkness of death. You are sent into that world to be an emissary for the King Jesus of your kingdom. And that has certain implications. You go to people, and if you'll notice, what the apostles do is they speak and preach the truth that the kingdom of God has come near, that it's a reality that's breaking into the world all around them, and they tell people with their words, do you take that charge seriously? In your fraternities, and your sororities, in the clubs in which you are associated on campus, in your classrooms, do you proclaim to people the good news that the kingdom of God has come near, a kingdom filled with light and joy and peace and freedom? But they also preach it with their actions. They adopt a life of purity and holiness. They love their neighbors. They cast out the spiritual forces of evil in those around them. They heal the sickness and brokenness in the lives of those around them. They love their neighbors, forgive their enemies. Do you live out the kingdom of God and do you proclaim it with your words? If you're a part of the kingdom of God, what it means is to be sent into a kingdom of darkness and brokenness. And here's the thing, when all those things are true, when you're a part of the kingdom of God, and because of that, you're sent by King Jesus as an emissary to tell people that his kingdom has come near and broken in, you're told to, to show them what it means to live under the rule and the reign of kingdom of God in a way that's beautiful, and it shows them how, how great and awesome it can be to be a disciple of Jesus. When you live that kind of life, there will be times where there are consequences. Because the kingdom of sin and death reigns and rules over culture, because it's dominant in our world and in our history, there will be times when there are consequences. Sometimes there are casualties in this war. Sometimes John the Baptist gets beheaded. Sometimes the disciples are rejected. Jesus is cast out of his hometown. Sometimes you go out on a limb and you show self-sacrificial love to someone and they take advantage of you. Sometimes you forgive an enemy and they spit in your face. Sometimes you tell someone about the good news that the kingdom of God has come near, or you live out a life of purity and holiness that demonstrates that the kingdom of God has come near, and people reject you. They mock you, or laugh at you, or scorn you, or persecute you and exclude you. Sometimes there are consequences to these actions. Sometimes there are casualties in the midst of this war against the kingdom of sin and death. And as you grapple with all these different realities, as you think about the fact that you have to make a choice, that there's no middle ground, as you realize that what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God is that you've been sent into a kingdom of darkness and death where sin reigns supreme, as you think about the fact that what that means is sometimes there will be consequences to your actions, sometimes it won't make sense in the face of culture, sometimes it won't make sense in the face of history or what people tell you or what other people think you have to realize, what I've come to realize, what I grapple with in this text is that I think the picture that Mark shows us is that sometimes your life will look absolutely stupid unless what you believe about Jesus is true. Think about John the Baptist. His life is absolutely stupid. He, he goes out into the wilderness to start this religious movement. He eats bugs and honey and slowly begins to cobble together a little bit of power in a religious movement and then gives it all away to the person of Jesus. Then he speaks truth to power and gets arrested for it. 
and through circumstances that are completely out of his control and completely messed up, he gets beheaded. That's not exactly what you would define as a successful life. His life looks pretty stupid unless what he believed about Jesus was true. And then he lived one of the most profoundly impactful and meaningful lives that he could have. He becomes the prophet that prepares the way for Jesus. He becomes the one that makes straight the paths for the Messiah. He becomes the most powerful and important and prestigious prophet to have ever lived. The apostles, their lives look pretty stupid. They left lucrative positions. They left lucrative places where they could make a living. They left causes that they believed in to follow this Jesus guy. And they totally misunderstand. They don't get the picture at all. He sends them out and tells them to leave all their belongings with him. I mean, Jesus could have been the greatest con man of all time. They don't even know him that well. They could have left all their stuff with him and Jesus could have just bailed. It's the stupidest decision they could have made unless what they believed about Jesus was true. And then they get to live lives of eternal and important significance as they become the beginning of the kingdom of God breaking into this world. As through their actions and words and deeds, they get to witness the kingdom of God come alive in the lives of people around them. Let's make this just a little bit more real. Uh, Take Ben over here. Um, I don't know if you know this about Ben. He's quite a driven guy. Uh, He's pretty put together. He's very professional. And while it hurts every bone in my body to pay him compliments like this, you know, it's it's for the sake of, of a lesson, so I guess I'll do it. But if he wanted to, Ben could be successful in any number of fields. That's just the kind of person that he is. He could have a job making far more money in which he didn't have to deal with college students every day and probably felt a lot more secure. And when you think about that, it's not exactly how you would define success. It's not exactly how culture would define success. He made a lot of pretty stupid decisions. Unless what he believes about Jesus is true. And then every single day for the past three years, he's gotten to pour into the lives of college students as he turns them into disciples. Every single day for the past three years, he's gotten to enter into the mission field of Old Miss's campus and watch as it undergoes a revolution of redemption as the kingdom of God breaks in on the campus. Think about Dale, who's one of our elders. He has a pretty lucrative business. He's a very successful businessman. And if he wanted to, he could use that money and his possessions to go on a lot of trips. He could use those monies and those possessions to have a lot of really fun hobbies. He could use his money and his time and his possessions to do whatever he wants to. He could probably cobble together a lot of power and prestige and become a pillar of this town if he wanted to. Instead, what he chooses to do is every Sunday, he has a bunch of college guys over to his house to eat all his food and terrorize him for an hour or two. Instead, he shows up here week in and week out almost every Wednesday to spend time with college students. Instead, he's a shepherd at a church where he pastors to a lot of people. And that's not always an easy job. It's a lot of stupid decisions unless what he believes about Jesus is true. And then he lives a life of profound and eternal significance as he builds relationships with college students to form them into disciples. As his home becomes a place where the Spirit of God meets people who are in crisis or who are being formed into disciples and go onto the campus of Ole Miss. Brian and Julie, two people who are extremely dedicated to this ministry, who help maintain the facilities, who pour into your lives, who spend a lot of time and don't make nearly enough money to keep these facilities up. It's an oftentimes thankless job. It's just stupid decisions. And that's what they believe about Jesus is true. And then their lives are filled with profound meaning 
and importance. All too often, what it means to wrestle with these realities, what it means to grapple with the fact that you have, a, you have to make a choice. There's no safe middle ground. There's no sideline to sit on. Kingdom of God or the kingdom of sin and death. All too often, what it means is when you're sent into a world that isn't going to understand the culture that you live by, that isn't going to understand the ethic that you live by, that lives by the, the rules of sin and death, when you're sent into that kind of world and proclaim the kingdom of God with your words and with your actions, when you suffer consequences because of that, you suffer persecution, you're excluded, people make fun of you and mock you, when people take advantage of you, sometimes your life is going to look and feel really stupid. Unless what you believe about Jesus is true, and then you have the opportunity to live a life that's filled with eternal meaning and significance and purpose, to live a life that's filled with joy in the midst of trials, of peace that passes all understanding, to build relationships with people on the margins and encounter the person of God. But sometimes your life's going to feel kind of stupid, unless what you believe about the person of Jesus is true. And what Mark wants us to do tonight, what the Spirit through the Gospel wants us to do tonight, is wrestle with that reality. That it's not easy to live in a culture that's dominated by the kingdom of sin and death and live out the ethic of the kingdom of God. This is a pretty difficult passage to wrestle with, I think. This is kind of a hard place to sit and spend some time. And so what I want to do is just end on, on two words of encouragement. The first one is this. Um, know that you are not alone. When Jesus sends out his disciples, he sends them in pairs of two. God's community is a powerful and important thing. And as you go onto a campus, as you go to live out a life that is filled with the brokenness of the kingdom of sin and death, and sometimes you feel tempted by it. Sometimes you feel like your life doesn't make any sense. Sometimes you can't see what God is doing in the midst of the chaos and the brokenness that you feel and experience. When you live and are having those kind of struggles, know that you are not alone. There are people in this room who will encourage you. There are people in this room who will challenge you. If you feel that way, find someone and talk to them and let them know and allow them to remind you that you live a life that's filled with eternal significance and importance, even if it's difficult, even if there are consequences, even if sometimes you are rejected. Also know that this is a powerful place to invite people. We have a community that's different, that's shaped by the cross, that's welcoming and loving and encouraging and kind. And what would it look like to invite someone into that? What a powerful way to experience the ethic of the kingdom of God. What a powerful way to experience the transformative community that's shaped by the gospel. The last one is this. In verse 30, we read, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And one day we're going to have a moment just like that. The final word is always going to go to the kingdom of God. Spoiler, at the end of the day, the kingdom of God triumphs over the kingdom of sin and death every single time. One day Jesus will return and his kingdom will break into this world in its fullness. And there will be no more sickness and no more pain and no more death. No more lying or cheating or stealing. No more broken relationships. No more woundedness. God will comfort you for all the pain and rejection that you have ever experienced. And I have to imagine there will be a moment for us, like verse 30, where we sit with Jesus. We tell him all the things that he taught and did. We get to share how we saw the kingdom of God break in in the midst of our lives and the lives of the people around us. What a powerful calling 
on our life. What a bigger picture than just this life insurance policy. What Jesus wants you to do is to leverage everything that you have, your relationships, your social capital, your, your money, your power, your choice of major, the choice of who you date and how you date, every choice that you make, every power that you have, every bit of who you are, Jesus wants you to leverage that for the furthering of his kingdom in a life that is filled with meaning and significance and purpose. We're gonna break up into groups in just a second. And just two questions I want you to wrestle with. In what areas of your life have you been living under the kingdom of sin and death? And what would it look like to live under the kingdom of God in those areas? Just two questions. It can be, maybe you feel like you've been sent to proclaim through your words and your deeds that the kingdom of God has come near. Maybe you feel like you haven't been doing that for fear of rejection. Maybe it's in your choice of major. Maybe you chose what you did for the most money or the most prestige, and maybe you need to revisit that. Maybe it's in the way that you date or who you date. Maybe it's in the way that you spend time with your friends and sororities or fraternities or your social clubs or whatever it is that you're involved in. Maybe it's something as simple as forgiving. <coughs> Two questions. What are areas in your life where the kingdom of sin and death reigns, and what would it look like for the kingdom of God to break in?